Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Got a huge day today. Trump has had only one job his entire life. I'll be talking about that and asking if it's going to work for him in November. Here in Portland, we had the feds show up. Donald Trump signed this executive order sending federal police, including his border patrol police, without name badges and things, into cities all over America to, quote, stem the violence. And uh, so what are they doing? They're going full brown shirt, or actually I'd say black shirt, right? The black shirts were the official militia or military of the German government. The brown shirts were the volunteers. Dr. Enric uh, Sala is going to be with us talking about the benefits of protecting 30% of the planet, our biosphere, to help ensure, oh, gee, something small like the survival of the human race. We're going to get into all these things, but I want to start out with this Trump is a celebrity thing. This just hit me the other day, and it was like, whoa, now I get it. With this one simple understanding, basically everything about Donald Trump's life, his business career, and his presidency all comes into focus. I mean, people are asking, why is it that he refuses to do his job as president? Why has he played golf one full year out of the three and three and a half years he's been in office? Why does he not read his intelligence reports? Why does he not attend meetings? Why, why, you know, why does he sit there watching? Why does he stay in his apartment in, in you know, in his little cubbyhole there or his, uh, his, well, I suppose it's a suite now in the White House, uh, you know, watching TV and eating cheeseburgers until like noon every day. They call it executive time, his five, six, seven hours every morning when he has to watch Fox News or, or one of the other right-wing networks. Why? Why won't he read intelligence reports? I mean, we've theorized about this, right? Maybe it's that, you know, his contacts aren't strong enough to read. And so he can only read giant type on a prompter. I mean, who knows, right? Well, I think I know, number one. Number two, why would he revel in lies and outrageous statements? Why, why does he embrace lies? Why is lying his go-to strategy? Why would he retweet a game show host? He did this overnight. 
who has a weird conspiracy theories about the coronavirus, and then he trashes his own scientists. In the White House, they just put together this supercut of all these times the Fauci, back in February, when we had one person infected in the United States, saying, oh, you don't have to worry yet. And they cut off the part where he said, yet. I mean, not literally that. It was, he, he said five, six more words beyond that. But you get my point. Why? Why is Trump waking up every day asking himself, how can I grab the news cycle today? Regardless of what that grabbing of the news cycle may have to do with public health, may have to do with democracy in our constitutional republic, may have to do with international affairs, may have to do with the future of peace on earth. He doesn't give a a damn about any of that stuff. Just one thing. And that is that the common line through all of this is that Donald Trump believes that his job, whether he's president or whether he's running the Trump organization, his job is to be a celebrity. Let that sink in for a moment. Think about that for a moment. That's been his job since the 1970s. And it's all he does. I mean, you know, we have heard now from people around him, you know, from uh, John Bolton in the White House to Barbara Rays, who was the who ran his business, his entire real estate business back, you know, before before Trump ran for office, that basically Trump never does any work. He sits around, he has meetings. I mean, there's several people, you know, who are who were inside the Trump organization were like, we can't figure out what he does other than basically having meetings with people, having lunches with people, having and press conferences and press events. And, you know, and then when he got Celebrity Apprentice, that was pretty much all he did is he was a TV star for 11 years. It's because it's the only job he knows how to do. Get in the press, get your name at the top of the newspaper every single day, say and do whatever outrageous thing is necessary to make that happen. Celebrity. Now, this is, you know, if you want to read Mary Trump's book or get, or get into Mary Trump's book, basically she suggests that that's the survival strategy that lousy students and class clowns and school bullies have to get through. They can't compete academically. They don't have friends. They can't build meaningful or lasting relationships. So they become celebrities. They become famous for being the bully. They become famous for being the class clown. They become famous for, well, I guess that's it. And that's Donald Trump. He never outgrew it. He doesn't care how many Americans die from a virus or how many working people are going to lose their homes or have already lost their homes. He doesn't care how many families get wiped out. He doesn't care that it takes six, seven, eight days to get the results of a coronavirus test back. He doesn't care that most people can't even get a coronavirus test in America. Mick Mulvaney, for God's sake. Mick Mulvaney, his former chief of staff, the former you know, Tea Party Coke acolyte congressman who became Trump's chief of staff, was tweeting this morning from from wherever he was tweeting. I think he's the, our representative now to Northern Ireland or something. Trump got rid, you know, gave him a, a nice book saying that he couldn't get his son tested. His son, his son, he thinks his kids have COVID. His son tested, uh, you know, it took seven days to get the results. He hasn't got the results back and, and his daughter doesn't even qualify to get tested. He's furious. 
Jeez, what a surprise. It's because Trump is good at being a celebrity. He's, he's very good at being a celebrity. It's the only thing he's competent at. He's lousy as a businessman. He's had six bankruptcies. He's screwed millions or thousands of people. But he's so bad at being a businessman that recently he's had to throw in, recently the last 20 years, he's had to throw in with organized crime, both in the United States and overseas. He's used his real estate empires for money laundering, for oligarchs and for mobsters, particularly his international properties. An amazing thread about this on Twitter over the weekend that I retweeted. Um, You can check it out. Because he's good at being a celebrity and terrible at being a president, America is now facing disasters at almost every level. Although Trump is still making sure that every day he's at the top of the newspaper. Bill Barr takes out the three federal prosecutors who are looking into Trump crimes. You'd think that would be at the top of every newspaper in America. But oh no, Trump has figured out something even more outrageous to tweet about. As if to prove this, today Trump tweeted... Is this what you want from your president? With no ratings, media will go down along with our great USA. He's he's retweeting a a new anti-Biden ad uh, that characterizes uh, Joe Biden as boring. Right. And he says, you know, this is going to be bad for the networks. They're going to lose money if Joe Biden becomes president. Right. America needs statesmen and stateswomen in our senior political posts, not a mobbed up celebrity surrounded by pathetic syncopants. I mean, it's, it's, this, is, this is where we are, and this is how we got here. I, I have so much more that we're going to get to as we continue through the program here. And, of course, we'll be picking up your phone calls as we go through the day. But do you think I've, you think I've nailed this thing? That the only thing Trump knows how to do is be a celebrity? When is the rest of the media going to figure this out? This is the Tom Hartman Program. They keep taking him seriously and pretending like he's actually got policies. No, he's a celebrity. That's all he knows how to do. Tom Hartman here. My new book, The War on Voting, it should be titled The Republican War on Voting, which is what it really is, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back. It is the third in the series, the Hidden History series. The first was Guns in the Second Amendment. The second was the Supreme Court, The Betrayal of America. You can check it all out at TomHartman.com. All the information is there. Tyrone in Harlem, New York. Hey, Tyrone, what's on your mind? Thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? How you doing? Thanks, Tom, for taking my um, call. You know, uh, Trump, he don't have an addiction to drugs or alcohol or anything like that, but his addiction is the media. He, remember, he had um, fake being interviewed by some kind of media person thinking that he wasn't Donald Trump and that he was somebody else using the same voice, not even disguise it. Who does that? Oh, yeah, John Barron. In the 80s and 90s, he would call up reporters and say that he was John Barron, Donald Trump's press officer, and or John Barron, a guy who knows Trump, and I'm going to leak some really good information to you. And then it was always about, you know, Trump just had sex with this uh, supermodel, and she said it was the best ever. You know, he was doing that with Marla Maples, in fact. He was, he, he was feeding them in, while he was still married to Ivana, he was feeding them information about how he was, he was the best guy in bed Marla Maples had ever known. I mean, it's insane. So I 
I know he wake up every morning and say, I can't believe these idiots put me in the White House. I can't believe mm-hmm. that to get away with what I'm... I know, I know I would be. I, would be, I can't believe you're allowing me to get away with the things. I fired the head of the FBI. I get my friend out of jail for helping me become president by getting information from Russia and I'm getting these, I'm letting these people out of jail. I can't believe these people are letting me get away with what I'm getting away with. So whose yeah. fault is it? Is it his fault for taking advantage of stupid people? Or is it our fault for allowing him to take advantage of us? Well, it's, you it's know the old... You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's the old saying that George Bush mangled, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And it's like, you know, if we haven't learned the lesson, Tyrone, if we haven't figured out that this guy is a grifter and a con man and a chronic liar and a narcissist, and he's got no intelligence, he's got nothing to say of any value, it's just breathtaking. It really is. Well, it's up to us to get him out of office. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. And that's what we've got. Okay. Yeah. Tyrone, thanks a lot for the call. Good talking to you. By the way, we're going to get into, as we continue through the program, Trump is not just a celebrity. He's also a wannabe dictator. He wants to be Victor Orban. He wants to be Rodrigo Duterte. He wants to be Abdul el-Sisi. I mean, you know, pick your autocrat, Jair Bolsonaro. And he did this executive order creating a federal police force that is largely derived from the Border Patrol people. You recall some, maybe six months ago, I shared with you this story about how Trump was turning ICE and the Border Patrol into his personal army. This is what Hitler did with what became known as the Schutzstaffel, the SS. They became his personal militia. Well, they showed up in Portland this weekend. We'll be talking about that too. Hey, we have a new video up over at TomHartman.com. It's astonishing. Just think about this. This year alone, with this one source of revenue, according to Senator Bernie Sanders, quote, this year alone, we could fund tuition-free college for all, eliminate child hunger, ensure clean drinking water for every American household, build half a million affordable housing units, provide face masks for everybody, produce the protective gear and medical supplies our health workers need for the pandemic, and fully fund the U.S. Post Office. Now, what is this magical thing that we could do that would produce enough money to do all these things? Fund the Internal Revenue Service. Republicans have cut its funding so badly since 2010 that fully a third of their enforcement is no longer happening. And tax cheats have walked off. They're basically refusing to pay over $260 billion in taxes this year. You can hear the whole thing over at TomHartman.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman the two ends before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us 
and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is um, extremely distressing, shall we say. Let me give you the little backstory. Back on June 26, this is what, three weeks ago? Trump issued an executive order. And this was in response to you know, people tearing down statues without the authorization of local governments and defacing them and things like that. Now, these monuments to white supremacy, they aren't even monuments to Confederate soldiers. They're not monuments to the South. They're monuments to white supremacy, period, full stop. And in fact, most of them were put up during the explosions of the Klan that we had in the 1890s, in the 19-teens, and in the 1960s and early 70s. 
So Joan McCarter writing over at Daily Kos, Trump issued an executive order on June 26 to protect federal property and monuments and to authorize the Department of Homeland Security to deploy officers from around the country and from at least a half a dozen different federal agencies and departments. They've converged on Portland as part of Trump's law and order campaign. A senior official in the Trump administration, quote, once we surged federal law enforcement officers to Portland, the agitators quickly got the message. Our police chief, Chris Davis, says this has complicated things for us because the police here are banned from using violence, shooting people, basically, with the so-called rubber bullets and other uh, impact munitions is, I think, a better way to call them because they're not they're not rubber and they are bullets. But, you know, among the officers, Joan writes, are the elite Border Patrol tactical team, a special operations unit that was based on the border with Mexico, the BORTAC team are, quote, highly trained, valuable, scarce resources. So they're protecting statues around the country. By the way, these guys were deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq. These are serious warriors, killers. This was in front of the Mark Hatfield Federal Courthouse in downtown Portland on Saturday. A fellow by the name of Donovan Labella. 26 years old. He's regular at these protests. He stands there and holds up signs, sometimes uses a bullhorn. He is not violent, has never been violent. And the federal police, now the Portland police, they could use, I I believe at the most they could use tear gas. They can no longer shoot munitions, you know, flashbangs. We had one person really seriously injured here, another rubber bullets. They can't use those things against protesters unless the police feel that their lives are in danger. But the feds, Trump's black shirts, came in here over the weekend and nearly killed this kid. They threw a tear gas canister at him. He kicked it away with his feet. It lands halfway across the street. This is from uh, Ryan Noyan's reporting in the local newspaper, The Oregonian. Police who appear to be federal officers throw a canister that lands at his feet, which he lightly tosses away from him. It lands uh, towards the officers. It lands partway across the street. A few seconds later, a firing sound can be heard, and the man collapses to the ground, dropping the speaker. The video shows no sign of aggressive provocation on the part of the protester, who appeared to be standing alone. The protester in the video is 26-year-old Donovan LaBella. Friends told OPB that LaBella was a regular and nonviolent presence at protests. His mother said his face and skull were fractured and that he finished facial reconstruction surgery early Sunday morning. He still has a tube in his skull to drain the blood, his mother Desiree LaBella said. He also has to have an MRI for vision problems in his left eye. The governor of this state, Kate Brown, said Trump's deployment of federal officers to Portland, quote, only serves to escalate tensions and will bring unnecessarily violence and confrontation. She said this cycle of violence must end. She said the events of last night at the federal courthouse were the tragic and avoidable result of President Donald Trump for weeks continuing to push for force and violence in response to protests. And then you look at our commissioners, our city council, essentially. Chloe Udele says the protester did not threaten anyone's safety, describing the shooting as reckless and inexcusable behavior. So he's not only a celebrity, but he now wants to be a celebrity for being a tough guy, right? For being a fascist. It's unfortunate, she says, this is our Portland Commissioner uh, Udele, 
if I'm mispronouncing my apologies. It's unfortunate that Trump cares more about protecting monuments and buildings than he does people's lives and constitutional rights. Commissioner Joanne Hardesty condemns the federal troops' presence and demands that they withdraw. Commissioner Amanda Fritz, this is our city council, right? Said the person in charge of our country and federal law enforcement has shown utter contempt for human life. We should not be surprised he's fueling up evil in Portland by sending in federal officers, knowing that the city council has no authority to control or expel them. Our Senator Ron Wyden said that this is like an occupying army. Our Senator Jeff Merkley said it raises serious concerns. Trump, a couple of days ago, talking to Chad Wolf, the head of Homeland Security of these federal police, said, quote, you people are handling it very nicely. Right. It seems to me like we are rapidly sliding into fascism with these federalized police officers. This will alarm you as much as it does me. We have with us, and we're very pleased to have him back on the program, Senator Ron Wyden, my senator, one of my two senators, Wyden, W-Y-D-E-N.Senate.gov is the website, his Twitter handle, of course, at Ron Wyden. Senator, welcome back to the program, and thanks so much. We had federal police here in Portland, and they shot a kid over the weekend and uh, wounded him quite badly in a way that would have been illegal for the city. The mayor, Mayor Wheeler, is pretty flipped out about this. What's going on? Well, it seems to me that peaceful protests, and we've seen this over time, are what's needed to keep up the pressure for real change, particularly rooting out systemic racism. And what we don't need is Donald Trump parachuting federal law enforcement into U.S. cities as if they're enemy strongholds requiring occupying armies to suppress. So that's what the issue is here, and I'll, I'll just give you my kind of bottom line, is Donald Trump is always talking about how he loves law and order, yet it seems that every instinct in him drives him to target lawful, peaceful protests, and he tries to inflame those debates into disorder. Yeah, he said yesterday, quote, Portland was totally out of control, and we went in, and I guess we have many people right now in jail. We very much quelled it. If it starts again, we'll quell it very easily. It's not hard if you know what you're doing. Just shoot some people in the face? Look, we're going to get the facts on what happened, but this isn't the first time we've seen the danger of Trump's tactics. I mean, last month in Washington, he deployed federal law enforcement as an occupying army against peaceful protesters so he could saunter over to a church for a bizarre photo op. And I have been leading the congressional Democrats to get the answers to that a few days after it happened on the Energy and Natural Resources Committee. We have uh, authority over the Interior Department. I said I wanted answers, and we're going to insist on the government accountability office looking at it now. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell is uh, looks like he's getting prepare. He's preparing to play this game that he's been playing with Democrats for years, where really critical legislation. He dances it right up to the last minute. I mean, the Senate is not coming back into session until five days before the enhanced unemployment benefits for 30 million Americans runs out. That's 11 days from now they run out. And McConnell is saying that 600 a week was a mistake. You've got the White House saying ah, that's too much money. You've got Steve Mnuchin saying that, you know, we want to we want to cut it back. You know, 30 million unemployed people are literally depending on this stuff. 
Yeah, and we're not going to let Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump say to all those hurting workers who are trying to make rent and pay for groceries that they can go pound sand while he gives out goodies to his friends. I'm the guy who negotiated that $600 extra per week, each week through July 31st with Steve Mnuchin. Negotiations took place in the Senate finance room, and the reason we came up with the formula is Secretary of Labor Scalia, I'm sure your listeners remember that name, was completely uncooperative. He wouldn't work with us to come up with a basic replacement system. As we know, the states, including Oregon, have had a lot of challenges because they're using Bronze Age uh, technology. But I'll tell you, we are not going to come out of these negotiations and the ranking Democrat on the Finance Committee having negotiated that package, Mitch McConnell is not going to be able to tell all those workers from sea to shining sea, he's not going to be able to tell them go pound, pound sand and then give out goodies to his friends. Yeah, well, I hope you are right. I really do. And I tip my hat to you for holding us strong on this. We have a record 5.4 million people who have lost their health coverage. And this is a study that wrapped up at the end of May. So we don't have the statistics yet for June, and, and we are in July. But this was released by Families USA Today, this report. And it's a 40% higher loss than in the 2008-2009 recession, in which uh, case 3.9 million adults lost insurance. So 5.4 million. Presumably it's actually much higher than that now because we're you know five weeks down the road from the compilation of this data. Is it time for major structural reform in the way that we're delivering not just health care, but right across the board, America's social safety net. It seems like other countries do this so efficiently. Absolutely. And let me give you a couple of examples with respect to unemployment benefits. After July 31st, what I have proposed is that future benefits be tied to economic conditions on the ground. It's called the stabilizer. And what you do with that is you ensure, for example, that the far right, somebody like Mitch McConnell, can't hold everybody hostage every uh, few months. And it really should respond to what Republicans say they're for. I mean, it's tied to uh, marketplace conditions. When you have unemployment that's over 11%, you bet there ought to be another 600 bucks uh, a week. When uh, the unemployment rate tapers down, then the benefit tape tapers down. So we've got to reinvent the safety net. And also, I think there's a new approach that is going to start uh, modernizing the employer-based health care system. I started this a number of years ago. I said, look, it made sense for uh, the 1940s when we had wage and price controls, but we're going to need alternatives. We're going to need a more flexible kind of approach. And I'm on the Emergency Health Care Guarantee Act right now to cover people's out-of-pocket because they're getting hit so hard now that they've lost their job and they've lost their health care coverage with their employer. Yeah. Meanwhile, Israel was down to the point where they had no detectable cases or very few over a several week period. And so Netanyahu said, "Okay, we're going to reopen our schools. Two weeks later, they had an explosion. Now the country's back in lockdown. Forty seven percent of the total cases now that they've been able to identify came out of the schools. And we're going to reopen our schools. Well, Betsy DeVos, of course, is just looking to 
please Trump. I mean, we've always understood that. But I'll tell you, I think as we look out across the country, what we're seeing is teachers, particularly a number of them who are older, susceptible to the virus, say, I'm worried about my students in addition to people who are part of the faculty or part of the part of the teaching group. And so the question is, is Donald Trump ever going to think about something beyond his immediate interest on that particular day? Because this kind of narcissism really costs people's lives, and it's going to cost dumb students and, uh, and families and, and teachers dearly if, uh, if he insists everybody goes back to school for it's safe. DeVos over the weekend on the TV shows was fairly clear that she has no plan. It was basically the same thing Trump is saying, do whatever your local community thinks is best. Is Congress going to create a plan? Well, number one, what the Trump people are proposing with respect to the schools simply isn't legal. They cannot just say, we're going to confiscate the funds or we're not going to let them spend them that way and we're going to go looking for some ideological kind of trophy about privatizing um, ed- education. Look, we all understand that we want society in Oregon and everywhere else to be as open as possible, consistent with safety. And Donald Trump is always rejecting the public health guidelines. It's just a challenge to get him even to wear a mask when he goes to see vets. And so what I'm saying you is, go. you this bet, is, we're going to agree as Democrats to focus on needs. We're also going to focus on safety. Senator Wyden, Senator Ron Wyden, thanks so much for being with us, sir. Thanks for having me. Great talking. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It's the Tom Marvin University Book Club. Our book today is Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism by Ian Bremmer. This is from Chapter 1, titled Winners and Losers. It's time for a local revolution, the candidate told the roaring crowd. Countries are no longer nations but markets. Borders are erased. Everyone can come to our country, and this has cut our salaries and our social protections. This dilutes our cultural identity. Marine Le Pen's four sentences capture every important element of the anxiety rising across the Western world. The borders are open and the foreigners are coming. They'll steal your job. They will cost you your pension and your health care by bankrupting your system. They will pollute your culture. Some of them are killers. Le Pen fell short in her bid to become France's president in 2017. But her message remains compelling for the 21st century politics of us versus them. But this is not a story about Marine Le Pen or Donald J. Trump or any of the other populist powerhouses who have emerged in Europe and the United States in recent years. Spin the camera toward the furious crowd. There's the real story. It's not the messenger that drives this movement. It's the fears, often, if not always, justified, of ordinary people. Fears of lost jobs, surging waves of strangers, vanishing national identities, and the incomprehensible public violence associated with terrorism. It's the growing doubt among citizens that government can protect them, provide them with opportunities for a better life, and help them remain the masters of their fate. As of December 2015, just 6% of people in the United States, 4% in Germany, 4% in Britain, and 3% in France believe the world is getting better. The pessimistic majority suspects that those with power, money, and influence care more about their cosmopolitan world than they do about their fellow citizens. Many citizens of these countries now believe that globalization works for the favored few, but not for them. And they have a point. Globalization, the cross-border flow of ideas, information, money, people, goods, and services, has resulted in an interconnected world where national leaders have increasingly limited ability to protect the lives and livelihoods of their citizens. In the digital age, borders no longer mean what citizens think they mean. In some ways, they barely exist. Globalism, the belief that the interdependence that created globalization is a good thing, is indeed the ideology of the elite. Political leaders of the wealthy West have been globalism's biggest advocates, building a system that has propelled ideas, information, people, money, goods, and services across borders at a speed and on a scale without precedent in human history. Sure, more than a billion people have risen from poverty in recent decades, and economies and markets have come a long way from the financial crisis. But along with new opportunities come serious vulnerabilities and the refusal of the global elite to acknowledge the downsides of the new interdependence confirms the suspicions of those losing their sense of security and standard of living that elites in New York and Paris have more in common with elites in Rome and San Francisco than with their discarded countrymen in Tulsa, Turin, Tuscaloosa and Toulon. The globalists gutted the American working class and created a middle class in Asia, former White House strategist Steve Bannon told The Hollywood Reporter a few days after Donald Trump's 2016 election victory. 
The issue is now about Americans looking not to get effed over, end of quote. In the United States, the jobs that once lifted generations of Americans into the middle class and kept them there for life are vanishing. Crime and drug addiction are rising. While 87% of Chinese and 74% of Indians told pollsters in 2017 that they believe their country is moving in the right direction, only 43% of Americans said the same thing. In Europe, the European Commission and the unelected bureaucrats who enforce its rules have legislated for its 28 member nations. In recent years, they failed to halt a debt crisis that has forced many Europeans to accept lower wages, higher prices, later retirement, less generous pensions, and an uncertain future, all while telling them that they must bail out foreign countries that have spent their way into debt. In the migrant crisis, globalist European leaders insisted that all EU members must accept Muslim refugees in numbers determined in Brussels, and barricades and a spike in nationalism were the result. I'm defining nationalism here as one form of us versus them intended to rally members of one nation against those of other nations. Were the wave of populist nationalism sweeping the United States and Europe only signs of globalism's failure? It would be bad enough. But there's a larger crisis coming. Many of the storms creating turmoil in the U.S. and Europe, particularly technological change in the workplace, broader awareness of income inequality, are now headed across borders and into the developing world, where governments and institutions are not ready. Developing countries are especially vulnerable because the institutions that create stability in developing countries are not as sturdy, and social safety nets aren't nearly as strong as in the United States and the, and the European Union. They face an even bigger gap between rich and poor, and the reality that new technologies will kill large numbers of jobs that lifted expectations for a better life will be much harder to manage. In short, just as the financial crisis had a cascading effect through financial markets and real economies around the world, so the sources of anger convulsing Europe and America will send shockwaves through dozens of other countries. Some will absorb these shocks. Some of them won't. As poorer people in developing countries become more aware of what they're missing or losing, many will pick up rocks. The book Us Versus Them by Ian Bremmer. Lou in Pueblo, Colorado. Hey, Lou, what's on your mind today? Hey, good morning, Tom. Uh, I just want to get your comment on something. You know, we all know that Goebbels said that a lie repeated often enough will be believed. And that's true. But, you know, repeating the truth works just as well. It's even more effective. You don't have to repeat lies. You know, a little background. I'm a technical expert. and I've taught thousands of professionals all over the planet who pay to come to my courses, I quickly learned that even an interested audience grasps less than one-third with one repetition. When I teach a five-day school, I repeat the key points over and over day after day until the students start telling me the key points. I test before and after, and I see a 60-70 point increase. In other words, you've got to have repetition. To get your point across, you've got to say your point, explore the details, and review it in the closing. Joe Madison maybe is the best guy I know that uses this technique. My point is it, it works better for truth. Now, where I'm going with this, I think the Democratic Party are missing a golden opportunity to edu educate American voters. If they sent the same articles in to the Senate every day, over and over, not because there's any hope that Putin will allow McConnell to convict, but the American people will eventually convict. 
that the Republicans are owned by international organized crime. I think Pelosi's doing a great job, but they really need to learn from Goebbels. The Republicans have, after 75 investigations into Hillary's emails, every fascist voter I know believes Hillary's guilty of something, even though they don't know what. You know, so right, your comments. Right. So you're suggesting, Lou, that the, when you said that what they should send to the Senate were articles, you meant articles of impeachment. I'm totally with you on that. I have been saying this for some time. Trump has committed a number of impeachable defense, offenses, and we need to be pointing that out. We need to be pointing it out in a way that's irrefutable. So, um, yeah, yeah, good one. Lou, thank you. Michael in Maltby, Washington. Hey, Michael, what's up? Hi, Tom. You were talking about the in Portland, how the Trump said the military and border guards to protect federal the police, yeah, federal police, yes, and they'd hurt the citizens of Portland. Right. Why doesn't the mayor put the police of Portland in between the protesters and the military, facing the military with their backs to the citizens? Because the citizens don't have guns. They that would be. That that would be a rebellion. That would be that would be interpreted as an insurrection. That that would I mean, you know, that's what the South did in 1860, 1861 after Lincoln was sworn in. Well, what you know, about when, when they, what? they have protesters and on one side of the street and the Klan on the other side and the police down the middle? Can't they do something like that? Well, we've had that in Portland for a long, long time. And the police keep, you know, slipping notes basically to the Klan, telling them what's coming and what their tactics are going to be and flashing white power signs at them. I mean, this is all fairly well documented. It's all over Twitter. You can easily find it. But the moment that a local jurisdiction turns their police on the feds, that will be the moment that Donald Trump will love. And he may use that to really flip us into fascism almost instantly. Michael, thank you for the call. I, you know, it's, I get your point. It, it would be a very dangerous thing to do. On the science revolution this week, can Americans stop the Republican Party and their billionaire buddies before another 100,000 Americans die from COVID-19? Dr. Michael Mann is here, and I'm asking him about the new climate models that are projecting even more extreme warming. Are they correct? Remington Gregg, the Council for Public Citizen, joins me on how the coronavirus continues to spread, yet there are no enforceable health standards coming out of this administration. Also, Chloe Waterman with Friends of the Earth drops by on how we stop meatpacking plants from killing us. Find the science revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Welcome back, Tom Hartman here with you and uh, Oh, what a day, right? Denise in Pensacola, Florida. Hey, Denise, what's on your mind? Yes, I'd like for your uh, listeners to consider that this is set up genocide between uh, Trump and Putin and maybe McConnell, because I consider them very dangerous men to our democracy. Also, a genocide would squelch some problems for Trump. He wants to get rid of our safety net programs, Medicaid, Medicare and social security yeah and yeah you're absolutely right disease, to... mm-hmm, i'm sorry go ahead no you finish your thought and then i'll i'll go off on it I, I, also he doesn't care for black lives matter you know and the disease seems to affect the uh people of color more so than any other race and also 
Mr. Trump doesn't like the disabled. You remember when he made fun of that journalist who was in a wheelchair? He he died yeah. not too long ago. He made fun of this that guy sitting there with uh, multiple sclerosis, sitting in a wheelchair. And also, I believe that was the journalist who also outed the fact that he'd been having sex with a porn star and a Playboy bunny. I think that he, I th- I'm pretty sure he was the guy who first had that story. But Denise, your point is okay. really well taken, and thank you, thank you for calling and making it. This is exactly what I've been saying ever since April 7th. On April 6th, I believe it was, maybe the 7th, uh, that was the day that all the newspapers all across America, up until that point, you know, we'd been locked down for almost a month. Trump had said, declared a state of emergency. Everybody was on board. Let's lock the country down. Let's get this thing under control. And then the Washington Post, the New York Times, front page story, April 6th or 7th, black people and Hispanics are the majority who are being hit with this disease. And within three days... Freedom Works and all the right-wing groups out there started saying, we need to reopen America. These white guys with their Confederate flags and their Nazi symbols and their upside-down stars with their AR-15s were out in front of the, of the state capitals. Donald Trump is tweeting, liberate Michigan. You know, I mean, it was like, within three days, all of this stuff happened. Everything changed. And I don't disagree. I, you know, I'm not sure I would use the word genocide specifically, but I think he's certainly allowing, now that he believes that most of the people dying are black and brown, it's just fine with Donald Trump. Yeah, let's just do it. Let's just do it. Bob in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Hey, Bob, what's up? Hello, Tom. Good day to you. What's up, I just want to comment on the, on the poor, the poor fellow that was protesting there and, and got assaulted. I do agree with previous caller that the local or the state police has an obligation to protect illegal speech in public places, even from the likes of a Bill Barr or a Donald Trump regime. I yeah, but there is the supremacy clause. Call it rebellion. I mean, the, the, Fascism is already here. It's not, you know, fear. Yeah, fascism. no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, and I, and, I, and I would love to hear how local police can take on federal police. You know, maybe not I'm missing something, but I, I don't know how that can happen. Yeah, well, talk to local police and state police about their concern with, with those who you can find who are concerned, as, as most of us are, with, with the likes of a fascist like Bill Barr. How is he even there? I mean, after cover-up Bill, I mean, his, his record is clear as a bell. How does this man even reside in any right. Well, he's there because, because of Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is there because of the Republican Party, because the only Republican in the Senate who was willing to remove him from office was Mitt Romney. Lori in Portland, Oregon. Hey, hey Lori, your thoughts? Hey, I just wanted to say about him being a celebrity. Mm-hmm. The narcissistic way when he's doing the celebrity to get attention, and for most normal people, when you start getting bad attention, you would pull the reins in a little bit. But the scary thing about Donald Trump, because he has no empathy or any normal human feeling to know what he's doing is not okay, the attention he's getting, even when it's bad, is just getting worse. Because for Mm -hmm. him, it's just fuel for him. And so it's scary because, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, when Louise and I ran this Community for Abused Kids up in New Hampshire, we used to see this with some of our kids. They had been so shamed throughout their lives. Shame and punishment, often you know, violent, brutal punishment, had been used on them that it had lost its effect. They may still feel shame, but they didn't behave like it. And so they would act out in just terrible, terrible ways 
to get attention because it was the only way that they had learned that they could get any attention at all. And it was better to be beat up by their parents than to be ignored, basically. And I think that Donald Trump is exhibiting that same psychopathology. I think that's what you're identifying, Lori. He doesn't have any shame or he's not, you know, shame doesn't affect him the way it does normal human beings. And Lori, thank you for the call. So, you know, it's like his superpower, right? He can do and say things that other people would be ashamed of, and he feels no shame, including decisions that lead to the death of 130,000 Americans, soon to be a quarter million Americans. We'll be back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Right now, Dr. Enric Sala is on the line with us, the explorer in residence at National Geographic. He's the co-author of a new report titled Protecting 30% of the Planet for Nature, Costs, Benefits, and Economic Implications, and the author of a forthcoming book, The Nature of Nature, Why We Need the Wild, which will be out this uh, August next month. His website is pristinesees.org, P-R-I-S-T-I-N-E-S-E-A-S.org. And you can tweet him at Enric underscore Sala, E-N-R-I-C underscore S-A-L-A. Dr. Sala, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us today. I think most people who are not in the business of despoiling the planet assume somehow that the process of despoiling the planet at least is generating you know, some sort of social, some sort of positive good, some, some sort of, you know, it's, it's making us richer. It's making our lives better. You're suggesting that the costs outweigh the benefits by five to one. Tell us about that. Yes, thank you so much for having me on your show. Um, and I think that the COVID pandemic has shown that the emperor has no clothes, that yeah. our way of operating at the global level was totally unsustainable socially, economically, and also environmentally. And the science is telling us that if we want to prevent the collapse of our life support system, we need half of the planet in natural state, and at least 30% in protected areas by 2030. But then you have the Minister of Finance asking, well, how much is this going to cost? This is not affordable. But we produced a study released uh, last week that shows that for every dollar that we put in nature, for every dollar that we invest in protected areas, nature gives us at least $5 in return. Okay. So how does this work? I mean, you know, reduce that to some practical steps. Uh, You know, take a part of the world. What do we do with it? Okay. So right now, uh, about three quarters of all the land that is inhabitable has been altered by human activities, mostly by... Uh, agriculture and forestry and and cities. Two-thirds of the ocean have been significantly affected by industrial fishing. But only 15% of the land is protected from our activities, and only 7% of the ocean is protected from fishing and other activities. So what we need to do is to increase that area protected to 30% at least by 2030, so nature can continue providing everything that we need to survive, like Uh, clean air, oxygen, clean water, food, everything we need to survive is produced by by other species. So if we protect that 30%, that 30% will generate economic revenue and and other benefits that are five times greater than the investment. And as an example, 
the sector of, at least before COVID, the sector of nature tourism in protected areas was growing on average 5% every year, while agriculture and forestry were growing only at 0.5% and fisheries were declining. They were on, on recession. If we protect forests, they will absorb rainwater and avoid huge costs from floods. And I think that this pandemic has shown the costs of not investing in nature because we had this virus that spilled over from an animal, a wild animal to a human in a market in China. And other viruses before also like SARS, MERS, HIV, Ebola, were a consequence of our encroaching upon the uh, intact forest uh, around the world. So the cost of the pandemic now, it seems that it will be $9 trillion over the next two years. You know, investing a small fraction of that in protecting nature to reduce the risk of the pandemic, I think economically it makes a lot of sense. At one level, it seems that a precondition for there being a political, a widespread political acceptance of this would be a widespread understanding of the fact that we are part of nature, that we are animals on this planet, sharing it with other animals and plants and other life forms, and that our relationship with them is not, in its healthiest state, is not one of dominance and control. Our intelligence will never match that of, uh, you know, five billion years of evolution, you know, developing natural systems that interact with each other in particular ways but that our best chance for survival and essentially prosperity, for lack of a better word, is to realize that we are part of nature and behave like it, to, to cooperate with nature rather than killing nature. And yet, you know, I turn on the TV and there's ads for weed killer. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, you yeah. know, our unsustainable practices are widespread. And I think it's because there's this belief that is probably shared by some huge percentage, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin to guess, but probably in the realm of 70 to 90 percent of all humans, that we are separate from nature, that we were created by gods who have nothing to do with nature or simply put nature here for us, and that our job and our role is to conquer and extract whatever the hell we want from nature and damn the consequences. How do we bring about that kind of a change in thinking, in culture? Yes, you are absolutely right. It's a changing culture, right? Because do we do have the science. We do have the understanding. But the most difficult thing to change is human behavior, right? And because we are very good at discounting the future and at thinking short term. But I, th I truly think that this pandemic is the best opportunity we have to turn this crisis into a moment of awakening. Because it doesn't matter who you are. You can be a prince. You can be a head of a state. You can be a billionaire. All these types have got the coronavirus. So the health of the richest person on the planet is dependent on the health or the behavior or the poorest person on the poorest country who might be killing a chimpanzee for food or capturing a pangolin to send it to China. If this doesn't change our thinking, if this doesn't convince us that we are interdependent of all of nature, no what will. You know, I get that, but it still seems like an abstraction. I can think of things like, you know, changing the way that we teach children about science and incorporating nature into that. 
changing the way that our, or trying to change the way that our religions treat nature and deal with nature, trying to influence our media to portray nature in a way that is the, the human relationship to nature, either you know portraying the horrors of the destructive way of doing it or the benefits of doing it in a constructive way. Are those the kind of things you're talking about or is there something else? All of this and uh, uh, the European Commission has a great example. They have a biodiversity strategy where they have decided to protect 30% of Europe's lands and waters by 2030. And they have a green deal also where they are going to get to carbon neutrality by 2050. This, uh, and all of the things that we need to get there, they are part of policy. Governments and businesses have to be part of it. And the European Commission has put it in very practical terms that I think can be applicable everywhere. That's remarkable. Dr. Enric Sala, the explorer in residence at National Geographic, his new book, The Nature of Nature, Why We Need the Wild, and the report protecting 30% of the planet for nature, cost benefits, and economic implications. Dr. Sala, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you so much. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Nuking the Moon and Other Intelligence Schemes and Military Plots Left on the Drawing Board. It's by Vince Houghton. This is from the introduction. This is a book about desperation. That word has been so overused and misused that it's lost much of its impact. Too many stories about some local sports team desperate for a win or some housewives desperate for whatever that show is about. These pretenders have trivialized a word designed to be used only in the most extraordinary of circumstances. It should be a powerful word reserved for the urgent and overwhelming feeling that one's life is at risk. It's for the truly existential threats, another misused word, to one's country, one's family, one's friends, or one's livelihood. To feel desperate is to believe there are no good options, that everything that has been tried or could be tried is destined for failure. Desperation leads us to consider ideas that would have been unfathomable under normal circumstances, because desperate people make desperate decisions. This is also a book about innovation. Creative thinking about how things work and the possibilities of how things could work has been the catalyst for the astonishingly dynamic technological transformation of the past hundred years. From the advent of lighter-than-air flight to hypersonic aircraft, from bolt-action rifles to electromagnetic railguns, from ENIAC to quantum computing, from one poor freezing soldier in a trench listening to intercepted wireless messages to the NSA's supercomputers collecting the metadata of billions, brilliant people with innovative ideas continue to shape our world and do it exponentially faster than the generations that came before. But when innovation and desperation meet, trouble will usually follow. If necessity is the mother of invention, desperation is the drunk uncle. The guy who only calls twice a year at 3 a.m. on your birthday with the greatest idea anyone has ever had. No matter how hard you argue against the logic of his narrative, no matter how many flaws you find in his reasoning, he's resolute. This will work. It has to. He's a desperate man. Every so often, we're surprised when one of these ideas actually pans out. The U-2 and SR-71 spy planes, some of the most innovative aircraft ever designed, were the result of American desperation to see inside the Soviet Union. Nuclear power, computers, the internet, modern textiles, personal encryption, even the process of how some of our food is grown, were born out of the nation's desperate fear to keep pace with an imposing rival. Much of that history has been written before. Countless books have been published about the remarkable and successful technology developed over the last century by governments for national security needs. This is not one of them. Most history books are full of stories that happened. This is a history book full of stories behind things that didn't happen. 
Here we'll take an expansive look at projects, missions, operations, and technology that were seriously considered, but didn't make the grade. Some were ultimately deemed too risky, expensive, dangerous, ahead of their time, or even certifiably insane. Others were canceled mostly because they were overtaken by events. The atomic bomb worked, the war ended, the plans were captured, other technology superseded. Generally, history books use events of the past to make powerful arguments about historical actors' motivations, personalities, and states of mind, and rightfully so. This is part of what history books are supposed to do. But I contend that the evaluation of historical events is not enough. It can be just as important to investigate policies, decisions, and technologies that were considered at the highest levels, but then nixed for a variety of reasons. The outcomes of the programs are inconsequential to the overall message of the narrative. Outcome really doesn't matter here at all. That's why this book scorns the counterfactual, the game of what if, vilifies it, mocks it mercilessly. The counterfactual is our enemy. We will not what if ourselves until we are blue in our faces trying to rewrite history into a hodgepodge of ahistorical nonsense. Deep breath. I might have taken that a little too far. Counterfactuals can be a lot of fun when you're hanging out with your friends and family debating the what-ifs of the Kennedy assassination or the Civil War, the Protestant Reformation, or the Star Wars prequels, or the 1986 World Series. I forgive you, Bill Buckner, mostly. I'd be happy to join you all one day for a vigorous debate on historical counterfactuals, perhaps over your favorite adult beverage or bottle of Yoohoo, but they have no place here. Instead, all of these stories should have you saying, what were they thinking? The best way to approach this book is with an open mind toward the decision makers and how they were approaching the problems facing them. In almost every case, those in power were desperate to do something, anything, to combat their adversaries. Thus, what were they thinking is exactly correct, except I hope you'll be willing to truly embrace the question and not just see it as the dismissive aside or a hasty pejorative. Nuking the Moon and Other Intelligence Schemes, our book for the day. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.